Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast, hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Elliot Stein, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, covering financials litigation. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with BI, covering financials policy. So we're delighted today to be joined by Jason Gottlieb, partner and chair of the White Collar and Regulatory Enforcement Group, as well as chair of the Digital Assets Group at the law firm Morrison Cohen here in New York. Jason is one of the preeminent lawyers in the digital asset space, and he was named to the National Law Journal's inaugural list of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and fintech trailblazers. He's been widely published and quoted in the media for his cryptocurrency and blockchain expertise. And he's one of my favorite Twitter accounts to follow when it comes to crypto and law, since his takes I find to be always smart and measured. So we're really excited to have Jason here today, since there's, in my mind, really no one better to discuss some of the legal and regulatory issues around crypto. And I think it's a really good time to discuss the future of crypto law and policy, since just last week, uh, SEC Chair Gary Gensler testified uh, before the House Financial Services Committee, and we also had a stablecoin hearing before the same committee. And we are in the midst of what appears to be a pretty aggressive regulatory enforcement crackdown on crypto in the U.S. So with all that, Jason, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Thanks so much, Elliot. It's great to be here. Uh, and uh, welcome uh, uh, to Nathan as well. Thanks. Uh, so, Jason, before we jump into some of the substantive discussion about crypto law and policy, um, you know, we like to ask our guests a little bit about their background. So maybe before we get into, you know, the real content, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your legal career, your current practice, and perhaps most importantly, how you got into crypto law. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been a longtime nerd, right? Going back to, uh, you know, blowing all my bar mitzvah money to buy an Apple IIc computer to, to try to learn to code. Uh, so technology has always been uh, a part of my life. Uh, before law school, I worked at a computer and internet company in Tokyo uh, before coming back to New York uh, for law school. Uh, I started at the law firm Cleary Gottlieb and was was trained there uh, and had a, a really terrific time. I wanted to branch out in, uh, through a, a sort of smaller, more entrepreneurial firm where I could build up a, a technological practice. And really, that's what I've been able to do here at Morrison Cohen, uh, building up a, a practice that started as a general fintech uh, litigation and enforcement practice. Uh, but in the last few years, we've moved very heavily into digital assets, uh, which includes cryptocurrencies, but all aspects of a, a Web3 environment. Uh, it's It's been fascinating to me uh, ever since sort of early on, uh, I read the Satoshi White Paper, and my first thought was uh, not about the, the privacy implications or the, the, the uh, cryptography implications. My first thought was, oh, man, regulators are going to hate this. And it took them a while to catch on, but uh, when when they did, they they certainly did hate it. So we're dealing with the aftermath of all of that as well. 
What was it in particular that made you think that regulators are going to hate it? The fundamental insight in that white paper and of uh, cryptocurrency in general is disintermediation. The ability to conduct financial transactions in a secure way without having to have them go through banks or other financial intermediaries. Regulators are going to hate that because regulators rely on intermediaries, right? Regulators both set the rules for the markets, but they're also the enforcers. They're the cops who make sure that nobody's doing anything bad, whether it's money laundering or securities fraud or commodities markets manipulation, that they need to watch the entire markets. But, uh, you know, crypto regulators are not Michelle Yao. They can't be everything everywhere all at once. So they need to rely on intermediaries to watch the markets for them. And they essentially deputize the, the big banks, the broker dealers, the transfer agents, uh, everyone who plays an institutional role to follow rules designed to prevent wrongdoing. Cryptocurrency sweeps all of that away. It says we don't need any of the intermediaries. We can do all of this ourselves. And if you're taking away the regulator's ability to monitor the markets, uh, they're going to resist that. They're going to insist on having these intermediaries for a legitimate uh, consumer protection and even uh, national security issues. Yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. And, and I think it tees up um, my next question, which is, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about SEC Chair Gary Gensler. He's, he's obviously taken an aggressive stance and saying that basically every digital asset other than Bitcoin is a security and needs to be registered as such. Um, and, and what you were just talking about, I think also ties into um, one of the reasons we reached out to you um, because you had a really interesting uh, thread on Twitter. It was like 25 tweets, so I won't read the whole thing. Um, but you know, let me read the first tweet of that thread because I think it, it sets things up. You wrote, uh, quote, people asking why the SEC slash Gensler are taking a ridiculous position on crypto, i.e. come in and register, but haha, you can't actually because crypto doesn't fit our regs. Is it dumb, evil, just protecting incumbents? No, it's that they don't see the paradigm shift, end quote. Um, and I think that disintermediation is probably the, the paradigm shift that you're talking about. But, but my question really is, you know, what happened to Gary Gensler? Because... Prior to coming to the SEC, he was a professor at MIT. He taught an intro class on blockchain. Um, and I think there was a sense of optimism in the industry that he understood the benefits of crypto and that he would be favorable to the industry. But, you know, it's been the exact opposite. He's essentially become enemy number one of the crypto industry. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on what happened. Uh, I'm, I think that what's happened is he's, as I said, missing what we would call this this fundamental paradigm shift and it's not just the disintermediation uh, because that's really more on the exchange front but on the security front where uh, chair gensler has taken a position where virtually every crypto is, uh, cryptocurrency is a security i think he's missing what makes cryptocurrencies fundamentally different from securities, and it is really a, a fundamental paradigm shift. Now, I, I had had some hopes that when Chair Gensler came in, he would do very much the same thing that he did when he was at the CFTC. He, he went on a rulemaking binge, 
And, you know, many people in the industry didn't like the rules he was making. And you could differ whether they were, you know, the best rules, great rules, okay rules, not so good rules, but they were rules and they could be followed. And all you had to do is follow the rules and you could have a good, successful business. Uh, he did that uh, with uh, fearless abandon at the CFTC. Uh, some of those rules got some pushback in court. Some survived. Many survived. Uh, some didn't. But but he was really, you know, Gensler, the rule maker. And I had had some hope when he came into the SEC that he would be Gensler, the rule maker again, to take an area where the rules weren't very clear and to put some sort of order in it. And nobody in the industry was going to be thrilled with every single rule. And there are a lot of people in the industry who don't want any rules and that that's just not realistic. But I had thought he would come in and create a set of rules that would balance technological innovation and consumer protection. Both of these are goals of the SEC. But instead, all we've gotten is crypto? No, you can't do that. And that that's really quite uh, unfair, both to this industry, but also to consumers, both consumers who want to be using these technologies, but also to consumers who are looking to the SEC for customer protections. I think what happens if you take this hard line saying that crypto just has to obey the rules, but you don't have rules that are capable of being obeyed, then what happens is you start to lose the domestic cryptocurrency industry. It all goes abroad. Now, some people may say, well, good, if, if we thought they were all lawbreakers, we don't want them here anyway, good riddance to them. But the problem is we live in an interconnected economy. It is a global internet system. So Americans can just as easily uh, find their way to international exchanges and other kinds of ways to trade, buy, hold, use cryptocurrencies. And if we're not going to allow them here and provide for robust consumer protections, then people will go get them elsewhere. And they may have robust consumer protections, right? If you're using a platform that is registered in Europe or in Singapore or in Caymans or BVI, you'll have the benefit of those countries' regulatory regimes. But there's no guarantee that that's going to be the same as our regulatory regime. And there's no guarantee you'll be using a, a, a system that was designed for those regimes or designed for any regime at all. And the result is more and more of the economy either goes underground, becomes anonymous, uh, which is uh, not good for uh, consumer protection because there's nothing you can do if something goes wrong, or it goes offshore where the protections may be robust, but they may not be. They may be in countries where we're friendly and can uh, cooperate with law enforcement, but they may not be. So all of this is on a, a net position, extremely bad for American consumers, and it's extremely bad for American financial innovation. So I'm going to take the conversation a little bit on the policy front, and you bring up an excellent point with the international piece, because we saw several members testify to the House Financial Services Committee uh, last week on stablecoins, and they're expressing that exact viewpoint. Now, in your opinion, is there a jurisdiction that you think will win versus others? Because you know we've seen MICA, we've seen the HM Treasury, people have been talking about Dubai. Is there anything off the top of your head that you're thinking as the where the, the industry is going to be going? Well, financial regulations around the globe, it, it's always a bit of a, a push and pull game. Uh, countries and regions 
are always trying to attract uh, strong innovation by creating friendly rules, but also, you know, nobody wants to be a pushover. Nobody wants to be known as the jurisdiction where all the scoundrels come and, and hide out. So we've seen a lot of very good uh, regulate, re regulations and regulatory frameworks springing up in Europe with the Mika framework, in the United Kingdom, in Singapore, uh, Dubai has its own way of doing things, uh, Switzerland before uh, even before Mika, and as I said, uh, Cayman and BVI both have a Virtual Asset Service Provider Act. There's also an element of international coordination, right? Everyone recognizes that a, a race to the bottom, whatever the bottom might mean, uh, might not be very helpful. So you have coordination uh, with the Financial Action Task Force countries to combat uh, money laundering, uh, which is a global problem. So there's a, an interrelation between the areas, uh, both you know, trying to compete for business but also cooperating to form a, a strong global protection system. Uh, the United States doesn't really seem to be interested in joining this international conversation. Again, we're uh, taking a very negative approach, uh, which is going to be replaced by some of these other regimes. So if people come to me now and say, you know, I want to start a crypto platform that does X, Y, Z, some of those conversations are fine. Yeah, sure, you can do that here. Uh, but many of them increasingly, uh, we either say, no, just absolutely not. There is no path to do it here. Uh, or we have to say there is a path, uh, but you need to get uh, a license. And they're not granting licenses for that right now, which effectively is the same thing. There is no path. So let's go back to the states then, you know, and, you know, just to reference that 25 tweet thread that you did in your 21st tweet, you stated the quickest way to change the game is legislation. We need Congress to pass new and favorable laws. So if you controlled Congress, I'm going to give you the power to control both the House and the Senate and so forth like that. What would you like to see passed? Well, definitely it would be a terrible idea to uh, give me that much uh, power, because if I controlled Congress, probably the first thing I would do is is make illegal the Fireman Sam theme song. But that's probably more of a, a personal issue than anything else. <laughs> I think you want our votes already. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pa parents everywhere uh, uh, rally to that <laughs> cause. Uh, but in, in terms of the crypto world, I think that what I would want to see is a framework, something like mika or something like the the vast acts and uh, you know i won't i won't sit here and and detail the statute that i would pass because if you thought my tweet threads were long you should see the legislation that i would write it it, it would uh put everyone to sleep by uh, somewhere around page 476. It, that doesn't sound much different than current legislation <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> but uh the as a general principle what I would have is essentially a regulatory regime where uh, people could experiment. If you wanted to issue a token, you could do so. You just had to register with a very short paper that says who you are, what your plan is, what your, your so-called tokenomics are, and, and what you plan to do technologically. Because I think providing that sort of disclosure in a public uh, doxed sense is going to get rid of 95% of the problems that we're looking to avoid in this space. What are we worried about? We're worried about uh, people without the uh, technological capacity to build something that has 
uh, consumer protections. We're worried about people rugging, you know, taking the money and running. But if you have people who aren't anonymous and, and everyone can see what kind of technological expertise they have or what kind of security audits they're going to undergo, what's their plan? I, I think you'll eliminate virtually all of the fraudsters because very few people are going to line up and register if they're planning on, on absconding with the money. But you'll also uh, enact uh, what we have a, a giant reserve of in the United States, which is uh, trigger-happy plaintiff's lawyers. So if you file your five-page uh, easy registration statement and you end up uh, doing something completely different or you end up rugging and taking all of the money, then the, the private lawyers will have some recourse as well. So I think that the SEC and Congress could solve 95% of the problems we have in this space by making a much lighter touch regulatory framework. Now, is there a Can I just ask a question right there? Sure. So, but, it, but it would be the SEC as the main regulator in, in, in this uh, you know, um, hypothetical legislation? I don't think that it, it matters much for something like this, whether it's the SEC, the CFTC, or some new regulator, right? If Congress is defining the laws and it wants to essentially define an offering like that as a security and provide that that kind of regime, it makes it um, less important whether it's the the SEC, uh, which is regulating investment contracts and, and securities, or the CFTC regulating the tokens as commodities, or some new agency. Uh, as long as we sort of pick someone and go with it, because right now uh, we've got one of the problems that we have in the industry is that all these tokens are are you know I. I I call them Schrodinger's tokens, right? It's a, a token in a box. And what it is, you have absolutely no idea until you open up the box and take it out and look at it. Is it a security? Is it a commodity? Is it is it is it money? And you, you don't actually know until a regulator takes it out and looks at it, and then it magically becomes whatever it is that that regulator regulates. So, you know, at the end of the day, as long as we have a, one regulator who is uh, reviewing these statements, we don't actually have to upset the entire regulatory framework very much for this. It's a, a fairly low-touch way of providing a path for crypto companies to operate and survive. So do you think Congress will actually do anything this year? Or even, you know, there was some momentum, I think, on stable coins until, you know, ranking member, uh, the House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters, sort of gave some tough language on that. Can we see Congress do anything or are we just going to be talking about regulations for the next two years or sorry, regulators for the next two years? I think it's possible for Congress to pass something on stable coins, because I think that there is some broad agreement on some basic principles. And, you know, I, I see that crypto may be edging more towards a partisan political issue, which is is unfortunate. Uh, but I, I think that it is not quite there yet. I think that there are some prominent uh, folks on both sides of the aisle who would like to see a sensible set of uh, financial regulations come into play. Uh, Stablecoins may be a sort of uh, lowest common denominator bill. You know, I think we can get there uh, on, on that. The DCCPA and the RFIA that were being considered uh, in the last Congress seem to be getting some momentum. Uh, but then, un unfortunately, after FTX collapsed, I think a lot of people wanted to distance themselves from the notion of crypto at all. 
even though the collapse of FTX, you know, frankly, to me, sounded exactly like um, MF Global or Refco and nothing what having nothing whatsoever to do with with the fact that it was crypto. So I wanted to ask you a question that's sort of been on my mind for a while, and it has to do with, you know, whether something is a security versus a commodity. And, you know, I mean, that's obviously one of the bigger questions in the current uh, regulatory framework. Um, and, you know, just last week, and I should say that uh, we're recording this on April 24th, but last week uh, Congressman McHenry opened his questioning for Gensler with, you know, a question that hit right on that issue. Um, and he asked Gensler whether Ether is a commodity or a security. And I thought it was a really effective opening question, and Gensler, I think, really struggled to answer it. Um, but my question for you is whether it's possible for a digital asset to be both a commodity and a security, um, which we saw in the New York Attorney General's enforcement action against Qcoin, where the AG alleges, you know, in, in various places in that complaint that Ether in, in some is a commodity but also a security in different parts of that complaint. Um, and the complaint cites to New York law, one old case, I believe, for that uh, position. Um, but you know, my question for you is whether there's anything allowing or preventing a similar approach under federal law. And, and maybe what I'm getting at is, you know, if an investment contract is more of a transactional test, why couldn't you have an asset that's a commodity um, in one instance, but then transactions involving that asset would be considered securities? Well, I, I think that that latter approach is the right way to approach it. And, and we can look at the, the origins of the definition of an investment contract in the Howey case uh, to, for, for an illustration of this, right? In, in Howey, we were talking about interests in an orange grove. And the oranges themselves were not the securities. It was the interest in the profits that they would generate. That was the subject of the investment contract. So similarly, I mean, fast forward, and you can have a gold or any other kind of traditional commodity repackaged and sold as securities. If I sold interest in my gold fund, it may well be considered a, an investment contract or a security. But the gold itself would not be. And here, I think, is where uh, we, we were discussing the paradigm shift before. And this is, I think, the fundamental point that the SEC is, is still grappling with. Uh, securities, in the old world, uh, securities came printed on share certificates, right? You'd say you own, you know, one share of IBM. And that, that piece of paper embodied certain uh, rights that you had for voting, for dividends, for ownership, et cetera. But the piece of paper was just a piece of paper. Like there, you didn't really need that. And when we digitize securities and everything resides in digital form at, at DTCC, we can sort of realize how unnecessary that piece of paper is. So we're used to thinking of it as, as the, the security is just the disembodied nature of the rights of the of the investment contract but with cryptocurrency we have something that is fundamentally different it is software it is code and that code like the piece of paper can convey certain rights but those rights are uh, divisible from the medium in which it is delivered so the sec's notion that 
the the crypto token embodies those rights is uh, completely wrong. And uh, my my good friend Lewis Cohen has has written about this at, at great length in a, in a fantastic article that that he and his colleagues put out. The SEC's embodiment theory just doesn't make sense, and it isn't supported by the courts. What you have now is something where where you can peel the rights away from that share certificate, that piece of paper. But the piece of paper, being software, is as infinitely flexible and composable as your imagination can allow. It's just software. And the division of the, the commodity and the medium that embodies it is the paradigm shift that I believe that the SEC is, is missing. Uh, you know, every 10 or 20 years, as I said in that tweet thread, someone comes along and says, my thing's not a security. It's interested in Orange Grove. It's oranges. Those aren't securities. Or it's, you know, beavers or, or whiskey or chinchillas. They come around and saying, this time it's different. And the SEC, and to be fair, courts generally look at it and say, no, 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 the securities laws are very flexible. And this this is swept into the definition of an investment contract. I think fundamentally, this time actually is different. And uh, for the reasons I've described, reasonable minds can disagree, right? I, I don't think that Chair Gensler is is dumb or evil. I, I just think that he is uh, disagrees with this notion of a paradigm shift. Sort of related to that, um, you were recently quoted in an article saying, uh, and I'll quote again, uh, the SEC is simply seeking to ban DeFi protocols in America. Um, and then in doing so, the SEC is substituting its own opinions for Congress's prerogative on a major question central to the future of the American economy, end quote. So that, that, that touches on a couple issues that I wanted to ask you about. The first is what's been called Operation Choke Point 2.0, which I think, um, you know, was, was a, the, the 2.0 version was a term coined by Nick Carter, I think, um, to refer to, you know, what, what's perceived as a coordinated effort to marginalize crypto and cut it off from the banking in, uh, industry. Um, but the second um, part of your quote has to do with, I think, the Supreme Court's major questions doctrine, uh, which, you know, for listeners who don't know, holds that agencies have to have clear congressional authorization to act on issues of major political or economic significance. So I was just wondering, um, you know, if you thought that the Biden administration is, in fact, engaged in some sort of Operation Choke Point 2.0. But then I also wanted to ask you about the major questions doctrine and how you see that playing out in the courts in terms of uh, crypto. So I, I think that there's been efforts from all corners of the administration, from CFTC, from SEC, from Treasury, uh, from, from OCC, to put more pressure on the, the crypto industry. Um, I'm not sure, you know, that that I would label it uh, choke point or not. It, it sure seems like that. Uh, but, you know, we haven't seen sort of an announcement. This is a coordinated attack. It, it's it's just it just happens to be coming. So I'll, I'll let other people debate whether, uh, you know, how much coordination is going on behind closed doors or whether there's anyone uh, behind closed doors who's uh, calling up the, the chairs of these various agencies and directing them to, to clamp down on crypto. Uh, but, you know, if, if we're going forward on that, uh, and you asked about the, the major questions doctrine, and, and you, you, you're exactly reading that quote correctly. I think to the extent that the SEC is saying crypto cannot exist in America, and we're seeing that 
through its action against cryptocurrency tokens. We're also seeing that uh, coming out of the recent meeting on uh, uh, amendments to the exchange rule and the recent meeting extending the comment period, uh, Chair Gensler made crystal clear that these rules were designed to apply to DeFi protocols and frankly, in a way that DeFi protocols are literally technologically incapable of meeting. And the result of that, I think, really very much is that uh, regardless of what the law says or, or what the regulations say, uh, the SEC is just interested in saying that uh, uh, DeFi exchanges have to be exactly as regulated as traditional exchanges or, or ATSs. Uh, which by their own nature is just impossible. So it's another version of come in and register, except this time instead of come in and register your token, it's come in and register your exchange, but the rules won't allow an exchange with that design to be registered in any way. So the result of this is that the SEC is simply saying that cryptocurrency tokens and crypto exchanges can't exist in America. And that, I believe, is a question of major importance to the American economy, uh, because we're seeing other countries around the world, as we've talked about, explore how to embrace this new wave of technology where anyone at any time could launch a fork of a DeFi protocol and have that be a new exchange. Uh, this is, frankly, a, a, it's a tidal wave that I you know, wh whether I fear or, or welcome, it, it can't be stopped. So the question is, how are we going to deal with it? Are we going to embrace it? Are we going to look to take advantage of all the benefits that it can bring and, and look to consciously and conscientiously blunt any downsides? Or are we going to step out of the arena, abandon dealing with it at all, and seed leadership in the next generation of financial instruments and exchanges to the rest of the world. That question is, I believe, of critical importance to the American economy. And I don't believe that the SEC or the CFTC have clear congressional authority to decide that question. I think a question of that kind of importance, the Supreme Court has already instructed us, those kinds of questions need to be answered by Congress. So you, you asked if we we're going to have legislation in the next two years or we're going to talk about uh, regulators until we die. Uh, I would certainly hope that uh, Congress can put aside whatever other differences it may have and come together to create a framework that will allow for the future of financial innovation in America. And we're certainly going to see that kick off because, you know, we've heard that several crypto bills are going to be released in the next few weeks. Um, so just we want to go to the grab bag, grab bag portion of our uh, podcast. And, you know, we saw on Twitter that you said you were a musician. And, you know, for the listeners who are, uh, aren't familiar, <laughs> Elliot's also a musician. So we've got several musicians here. Uh, what kind of music do you play? What instruments? And most importantly, we saw on your Twitter feed that you uh, you debuted a song called Folding Hexaflexagons with your son at the New York Museum of Math. Can you just give us a, a heads up on what your debut uh, album is going to look like? <laughs> well, I, so I started playing piano when I was five, and uh, I've, I've been, you, you called me a musician, and I think that's an extremely kind way to describe it. 
Uh, I've uh, picked up a, a number of instruments across the years and uh, I've recorded a number of uh, albums uh, just kind of all by myself in my living room. And uh, I, I believe that uh, my mother has purchased a, a couple of copies, but but probably not even of all of them. Uh, and that that goes to the uh, uh, the, the essential quality of, of these albums. I make music for myself and for my friends and, and for uh, fun. And, and that's pretty much it. Um, so, you know, it's it's been a lot of fun over the years to exercise the, the right half of my brain and, and to uh, kind of noodle around. Uh, and and yes, I guess we started this podcast uh, describing how much of a nerd I am. So, um, you know, doing a an Alexander Hamilton uh, parody called Folding Hexaflexagons uh, at live at the uh, New York City Museum of Math is quite possibly one of the nerdiest things that anyone has ever done. Uh, but uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, my eight year old uh, at the time was obsessed with. Uh, folding strips of paper into uh, hexagons that can be unfolded and refolded. Uh, it's actually a way of folding them that creates uh, multi-dimensional shapes in a very interesting uh, way. So, you know, we decided to write a song about it. Um, you know, uh, we're folding hexaflexagons. My son is folding hexaflexagons and he's going to fold them all day long and all night. Yes, all night. Uh, it goes on. It's on YouTube. That's embarrassing enough. I'll stop. No, that's great. We love that. <laughs> yeah, it's not embarrassing at all. And you are our first guest to sing a sample of a song on an episode. So congratulations. <laughs> um, just one more question for you, also related to music, before we go. We ask this of all our guests. If you were stranded on a desert uh, island, what three pieces of music would you want to take? And it can be a song. It can be an album. It can be, you know, catalog of one artist. Uh, that that is uh, an amazing question, and I would find it virtually impossible to to limit myself to three. So I'm I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, I would probably take um, uh, uh, the the Well Tempered Clavier by Bach, uh, a a complete works uh, the, of the the piano sonatas by Beethoven. And then um, probably something uh, much more modern, um, probably uh, an album, uh, I don't know, maybe the Foo Fighters, My Chemical Romance. <laughs> There's some uh, pretty terrific rock albums in the last 20 years. It's hard to pick. I, I like that combination, Bach, Beethoven, and Foo Fighters together at last. Um, well, <laughs> there's, there's, there's more in common than you might think. <laughs> that's, that's a nerdy conversation for another podcast. <laughs> well, we'll take you up on that. Um, well, I think with that, we're going to have to wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. We're extremely grateful to you, Jason, Jason Gottlieb, for appearing on this episode. I think it was uh, really illuminating and educational and, um, and fun at times. Um, and so we thank Jason and we thank you, the listener, for taking the time to join us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg Intelligence research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. And with that, thank you and have a great day. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.